Thank you, choir, for that reminder of our hope in the glory land that God will bring for us. So uh, as we begin today, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll get into our time of study together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you are the good God who has made us and all the things that we see in this world and all the things that we see, all the things that we touch, everything that we experience in this life. It ultimately calls us to praise you. And so, Father, I pray that as we study from your word today, that the result of that study would be a, a life that is lived in delight for the worship of the one true God. That as we worship together today and as we go into this world and worship in our daily callings, that in each situation that we would delight in our worship of you, that we would delight in you in everything that we do. Father, draw us near to you now as we study from your word. May your word speak to us and reprove us and correct us and lead us into all righteousness. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm chapter one or Psalm 148. If you want to go ahead and be turning there in your Bible as I spend a little time introducing and reminding you of what we where we've been and where we're going in this study. If you remember, we've been in a study of the uh, doctrine of worship and we've been looking at how we as Christians are called to or really created to delight in the triune God. And so we started the best place I know to start, which is to answer the question of who it is that we worship. And so the last five weeks that I've been able to preach, we have gone through uh, the doctrine of God and looked at who it is that we worship. Who is God? And first we saw that God is a covenanting, loving God who has made us and who has saved us for the purpose of worshiping Him and being in covenant with Him. And then we saw that God reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we went through each person of the Trinity and understood a little bit more about who each person of the Trinity is. And so now I want to move from answering the question of who it is that we worship to why it is that we worship. Why do we worship God? Why is it that we meet together Sunday in and Sunday out to worship the one true God? Now, uh, that might seem like a crazy question to ask, given that the fact that we're all uh, meeting together right now for the purpose of doing that. But I think that it's important to answer that or to ask the question of why it is that we should worship God for three reasons. First of all, it's not a given that we should worship God. And the reason it's not a given is because many people, especially in our culture today, kind of believe in this idea of God known as deism. And deism is the idea that God created the world, He made everything that we see, He put it into motion, and then He walked away. And really, He doesn't have any day-to-day -day interest in our world other than just when something big happens, you know, like a revolution or a big election or whatever it might be. But otherwise, he's not really involved and really doesn't care about our day-to-day lives and what the creation does with the things that he has made. The second reason that I think we have to ask this question is most religions 
Besides Christianity and Judaism and Islam, most religions don't have a requirement for regular worship. Now, yes, the the Abrahamic religions, the religions that came out of the Abrahamic tradition like Judaism, Christianity and Islam, they do have regular requirements for worship. But um, pagan religions and Hinduism and Buddhism and all other religions like that, they don't have such a requirement. And then the last reason that I think we have to ask the question of why we should worship is because it's apparent especially over the last 20 to 30 years, that even so-called Bible-believing Christians don't think we should. I say that because according to Pew Research, uh, the Pew Research Center, only 46% of professing Christians say they attend church on a weekly basis. In fact, when I first came here, Brother Watson was talking about how we used to have what was it, Brother Watson? You said 90 to 100 people on, a, on any given Sunday. Now we have maybe 50. I mean, we literally meet that statistic right there in, in, the, in the fact that we don't have nearly the number of people that we used to have in worship on any given Sunday. But the more disturbing side of those same statistics is that 36% of professing Christians say that they only wor- go to worship once or twice a year, if at all. Now, I would have thought when I saw that, that, all right, 46% go every week, but the next biggest group will be those that go twice a month or once a month or something like that. Actually, the next biggest group are those that only go a few times a year, if at all. Now, there are numerous causes for this lack of devotion in our churches. But I want to suggest that one reason is because we have lost our why. We are so absorbed with ourselves, with our hobbies, with our families, our leisures, our desires, that we have forgotten why it is that we are called to worship the one true God. So over over the next four sermons, I want to look at and try to answer the question of why it is that we should worship God. And I want to start by looking at one motivation that we all know is there, and it's the motivation of creation. To see that, I want to look today at Psalm chapter or Psalm 148. And so if you are already there, let's read together Psalm 148, and then we'll get into uh, understanding this passage together. Psalm 148, God's word says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created, and He established them forever and ever and he gave a decree and it shall not pass away praise the lord from the earth you great sea creatures and all deeps fire and hail snow and mist stormy wind fulfilling his word mountains and all hills fruit trees and all cedars beasts and all livestock creeping things and flying birds 
kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. So, in this passage, I want us to notice two particular points today, and we'll, we'll dive into some subpoints as well. But there are two things that this psalm does that I want you to notice today. First of all, it, give, well, it gives us two reasons for our praise to God. And the first thing that it gives us is the demand of creation. And the second point that it gives us is the design of creation. So I want to look at today the demand of creation and the design of creation. So the first thing that I want you to notice from this psalm is that the work of God in creation demands our worship. The work of God in creation demands our worship. The psalmist lays out this beautiful hymn of praise to God and he does a neat little literary thing that I want you to notice. If you read through that psalm again, you'll notice that it's like we're climbing downstairs. He starts by calling all of creation to praise the Lord. He starts just by saying, praise the Lord. But then he starts at the highest of heavens, way above the earth and the universe and everything. He starts in the very throne room of heaven and he says, praise the Lord. All you angels and all you hosts. And then he takes a step down and he says, Okay, now sun, moon, stars, universe, skies, everything, praise the Lord. And then he steps another step down. And he says, All right, all you uh, sea creatures and all you creeping things, that's bugs, by the way, everything in the earth, you praise the Lord. And then he steps down another step and he says, now all you kings and rulers and princes and all you young men and maidens and all you old men and children, everybody praise the Lord. And as he moves through those steps in all of this praise, the psalmist gives us three ways that God works Uh, that God's works of creation demand our praise. First, in verse 5, he says that the heavens should praise the Lord for He commanded and they were created. And we find here that the power of God in creation demands our worship. Did you know that before the 1990s and the uh, launch of the Hubble Hubble Space Telescope, that when astronomers looked up into the skies, they could only find just a few galaxies. In fact, scientists, before the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope, didn't really know that there were any more than maybe three or four galaxies that we could see with our most powerful telescopes that we had. If you were to take the most powerful telescope that we had before Hubble and you were to look just as far out into the universe as you could see, you would just see what looked like a sheet of 
stars. And that's all you could see. But then we got the Hubble Space Telescope up in uh, our outer orbit and looked out at what looked like a sheet of stars. And you know what we saw instead? All those little specks, all those little stars were actually other galaxies, just like ours. And as far as you could look into the deepest realms of space, into the furthest reaches of the universe, were galaxies upon galaxies upon galaxies. Millions and millions of galaxies as far as the eye could see. And with all of those galaxies, just imagine the power that it took to make all that. The power that it took, not just to make our little solar system with our nine planets and our sun, and not just the Milky Way that we live in, the galaxy that we live in, but a million upon million galaxies just like it, out there just as far as our greatest technology can see. And God made all that. Our earth is just a tiny, insignificant speck on that Vast, seemingly unending landscape of stars and planets and moons and galaxies. And we, us little people, are just a tiny, insignificant speck on that speck. We can't even organize our own week with the few little things that we have going in our lives. And yet God created this beautiful, vast, amazing universe with the command of his voice. God's power in creation demands that we worship him. Second, notice verse 6. Verse 6 says that this, uh, the psalmist says that the heavens persist because God decreed it. Now, in this statement, we find that the purpose of God in creation demands our worship. So the power of God into creation demands our worship and the purpose of God in creation demands our worship. Now, this statement in verse six encompasses all the parts of creation that came before. So if you go up from verse six, back up the stairs to the top. So angels and stars and sun and moon and sky, all of it continues to exist All of it consists on a day-to-day basis because of the decree of the Lord. So just consider just one part of that in the sun itself. Micah and I were talking about this yesterday. We were trying to beat each other with facts about the sun yesterday. But the the sun is 865,000 miles wide. So just... To put that in perspective, the earth is about 8,000 miles wide. So you could put 100 earths on the diameter of the sun. And not only that, at its core, the sun burns with 27 million degrees uh, Fahrenheit. It burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Now scientists don't have any way of knowing this, but they believe that the sun is made up at its center of helium and on the outside is hydrogen and it burns with such intensity that it burns at 27 million degrees Fahrenheit and here 
it only gets to be what? 90 degrees or, or, or 100 degrees at the hottest here on earth. And all that happens, all that hydrogen burning at a flaming ball of fire, and yet the hydrogen never runs out. It never just blows up and goes into oblivion. And the reason the sun is sustained, as powerful and massive as it is, is because of God's purpose. God purposed it, God decreed it, and so it stands fast. And the third way that the, uh, God's creation demands our praise is in verse 13. The psalmist gives us the final reason for creation's demand of our praise, and that is God's preeminence above His creation. The psalmist says that the majesty of the Lord is above heaven and earth. As powerful as the highest archangels are, as splendid as the expanse of the universe is, as spectacular as the great sea creatures are, you know who's above all that? The Lord who made them. God is above all of His creation. If the sun, which with its brilliant light, could blind you in three minutes flat, if the sun must praise the God who made it, then so must you. You must praise Him because He's above all things and He deserves your praise. His creation demands your praise. So now that we've seen the demand of creation, let's consider the design of creation. Now I know you didn't miss it as we were reading Psalm 148, but you might have noticed that in the list of all the things that God calls to praise Him, He didn't leave out humans. He calls on all humans to praise Him. Kings, in fact, He gives us another step-down list. He starts with kings and He says, praise Him kings and princes and rulers. And He steps down, He says, you young men and maidens, you praise Him too. And then He steps down another layer and He says, old men and children... Those that the society might have forgotten said it's not you don't have to worry about it anymore. Children don't have to worry about praising God. Old old folks don't have to worry about praising God. Said no, you praise him too. All of mankind is called upon to praise the Lord. God's design from the very beginning of creation was that mankind would worship God in all that they do. Now, this is often lost on us because when we read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we often read it for the technicalities. You know, God made this and then He made this, and we focus on the technicalities of what Genesis says about creation. But one thing that we miss, though, is that God created man and woman to be His priests, and He created the Garden of Eden to be a temple. Remember, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them a command. He said that they were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over it. Their calling was to represent God to the world, to reign over God's good creation. They were called to extend the garden into all the world, to take the name of the Lord into all the world. And we also find that the Garden of Eden is like a temple. 
Because God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the temple. Remember, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that he came in the cool of the evening to walk with Adam and Eve. However, unfortunately, you know the rest of the story. When the serpent came speaking lies, instead of representing God to his creation as Adam was called to, Adam instead allowed the Satan uh, allowed Satan to twist the word of God and deceive his wife. And through that act of rebellion, Adam plunged all the world into sin. Yet God was not done with his temple project. Later on, he would take his chosen people Israel out of the dust of Egypt and place them in a promised land. Another garden paradise, which sounds, when you read it, a lot like the Garden of Eden. And for that new Eden, God gave the Israelites instructions on how exactly to build a dwelling place where he could dwell with his people. Now, I'm not gonna re- we're not going to go and read all of this, but if you want a little uh, afternoon reading for your, uh, your Lord's Day reading, Uh, you can go and read Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 31 because in Exodus chapter 25 through 31, you'll notice that as God is giving instructions to Moses on how to create the tabernacle, he gives him seven different instructions. Like the creation story, God gives seven commands to Moses in Exodus chapter 25 through 31. And not only that, he begins each of these commands with the phrase, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Just like it says in Genesis chapter 1, and God said, let there be light. In Exodus chapter 25, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses and gave him a command to make a part of the tabernacle. Not only that, but the construction of the tabernacle mimics the creation. The walls and the curtains are the form, are given first as the form of the tabernacle, just like God made light and space and time and, and uh, firmament and earth and sky and ocean and all that, and then he fills it. And so the tabernacle instructions go from form to filling. God gives commands over how to make the curtains and the walls and all of that. And then he fills it with altars and lamps and furniture, just like he filled the earth with living things. You know, the interesting thing is, is if you go back and read how the tabernacle is designed, is that it says that the, the things that are made to fill the temple, they're palm trees. They're to look like palm trees and like animals and all of these different things. If you were to walk into the tabernacle, you know what it would look like? It would look like the Garden of Eden. It would have imagery of the garden because God's intention for the garden and God's intention for the tabernacle were to be a place for Him to dwell with His people. And finally, the last thing that God commands Moses to do when he's building the tabernacle is he commands Moses to ordain Aaron and his sons to be priests who would represent God to the world. They were to be the new Adams 
in this new promised land and they were to represent God to the world through this new temple. But you know the rest of that story too. Aaron's sons, in their very first worship service that they carried out, Aaron's sons, in their first official act as priests, offered strange fire before the Lord and God consumed them by the fire that they offered because of their false worship. And the Israelites as a whole would fail to live as a nation of priests, choosing instead to serve the gods of the Canaanites. Their rebellion would ultimately anger God so much that He would destroy the temple where for years He had dwelled with His people and He would allow the nations of Israel and Judah to be led away into captivity. But there is one final temple that we cannot miss. As the Apostle John is beginning his gospel, he gives this beautiful prologue that we've looked at before in John chapter 1, uh, or in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory. The word that is used there for dwelt literally means to pitch His tent with us. So what John is saying is that when Jesus became flesh, when the Word became flesh, He pitched His tabernacle with us. Later on, just a chapter over, in chapter 2, verse 19, John records that Jesus tells the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now John wrote that, what Jesus was saying is that if they were to destroy his body in three days, he would raise it up again. Jesus would bring about resurrection. You see, Jesus came as the true priest of God who would represent God to the world. And he didn't fail like Adam or like Aaron's sons. He perfectly revealed God to us. And in his death and resurrection, he has built a new temple. And He has made all who believe in Him to be priests in this new temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-5, through 5, it says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. You see, through the blood of Jesus, Jesus has made us to be true worshipers. He's made us to be true priests. And He's building us all together into the temple of the living God. We are, as Peter says, living stones that are built together into God's house. So God no longer dwells in a tabernacle or in a physical temple. He dwells in us through the power of His Spirit. Friend, the witness of creation demands that you worship the one true God. And the design of God upon your own soul demands that you worship Him too. If the sun, moon, and stars cannot help but praise Him, then you must do so as well. The reason 
that you, if you are outside of Christ, feel like nothing ever fully meets your desire and your purpose. Nothing ever fully satisfies that deepest longing that you have, whether it be substances or relationships or power or money or fame or whatever it is. It all seems to fall short. It's because you weren't made for that stuff. You were made to praise and glorify the one true God. That is the design for which God made you. And the only way that you can be a true worshiper of this one true God is through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot do it through Muhammad. You cannot do it through Hinduism. You cannot do it through yoga or through fitness or through whatever other means you choose to do. You have to do it through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, our fervor for worship is so often dictated more by our own worldly habits and interests and not by the demands of God's creative purposes upon our lives. We so often chase after our earthly pursuits, thinking that they can give us some sort of meaning or some sort of satisfaction, and yet they all pale in comparison to the God who made the universe and made us to worship Him. Our calling as Christians above everything else is to delight in this God because He has made us for it. And so we cannot know the fullness of our purpose in this world. Whatever your calling is, whether it's to be a farmer or an engineer or a carpenter or whatever your calling is, you cannot know the fullness of that purpose until you do it in the delight of God until you do it as an act of worship because it's what God made you to do. May we commit to the faithful worship of the God who created us for it and the God whose creation demands it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that you are the God of all creation and that because you have made us because you have made us for delight in you, we cannot help but try to find our delight by giving glory to something. Lord, so often we give our glory to other things, whether it be ourselves or our own hobbies or habits, or whether it be someone else other than you. Father, may we forsake those other false gods and instead turn to the one true God and worship him alone. Father, may we find our delight in you because we see in this beautiful creation the demand to do so and because we see in the design of our own hearts the requirement to do so. And may we go from this place in everything that we do delighting in you as we serve you in our lives. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.